From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. On March 31st, we brought Stay Tuned live to New York City's Town Hall Theater. Hundreds of CAFE friends and fans gathered with us for a night of learning and laughing. I spoke with Ben Stiller, the hilarious and brilliant actor, director, producer, and goodwill ambassador for the UN Refugee Agency. Gary Kasparov, the chess grandmaster and one of the most insightful voices on Russia and Ukraine. And Alexander Vindman, the retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel and former Director of European Affairs at the National Security Council. This episode features an edited version of our live conversation that covers Vladimir Putin's psychology, the likelihood of nuclear war, and the absolute necessity of humor. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS, we are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. Stiller is someone I have admired and enjoyed for so long. He brings me, and hopefully all of you, so much joy in his work, which is not a small thing. He is a brilliant actor, writer, producer, and director. He has a new show out, which is really good, uh, on Apple Plus. Is that what it's called? Apple Plus? Called Severance. His films have overall generated, I think, billions of dollars in ticket sales. He knows how to make people laugh, but he also is a humanitarian. And we're gonna talk about that. His advocacy for refugees, the work he's done in Haiti. Uh, He's a goodwill ambassador for the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR. We have a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Please welcome Ben Stiller. How are you, Ben Stiller? I, I like my theme music. <laughs> a little beat there. Do, um, do you sometimes dance when you come out? Uh, no, I don't. Can you dance? Uh, I, I can, I'm not, not a great dancer. I mean, I, I love to dance, but nothing that anybody would want to Do you dance actually. in public sometimes? No, I try not to dance in public. I dance it by myself, though. 
Um, good job with the uh, monologue. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah. You, you're, but you have a face. You have a face when you say that. I, no, I'm not, no, no. I'm not sure it was genuine. We got like a little Andrew Dice Barrara there. <laughs> um, Try to do something a little you different. Gonna, you go blue. You like to work blue. It wasn't that blue. It was like puce. <laughs> I don't think it was blue. Do you um, think it was blue? No, well, you went... You no, made you, you like, something about Mary. That's blue. Yes. Well, that was, you know, yeah. I mean, that was a movie that was an R-rated movie. And it's just funny to this hear... This is unrated. Yeah, no, and I'm glad you got that out of your system. Um, I enjoyed it. From backstage? Yeah. Okay, so let's move on. <laughs> Preparing for this interview was really fun because I, I told myself that one thing I had to do was watch, rewatch, in fact, all of my favorite Ben Stiller movies. Dodgeball, Zoolander. <laughs> Tropic Thunder, oh, nice. Keeping the Faith. Oh, less applause for that one. Well, it's, it's a few years ago. <laughs> and yeah. there's something about Mary. And I'm, right. I'm like downstairs in my basement office that I referred to earlier. And my wife's like, what are you doing all day? I'm like, I am working. <laughs> I am working. So thank you for that. I feel like it's a waste of your brain power to watch no, my movies it is in your not. basement. It is not. You have it more is. important things to do. That's an interesting thing you because I don't think that's true, right? The thing, so we talked about this before when I asked you to come on the show. So people think that you are like a funny guy and a comic actor. And when you do serious and important things that help people, some people say, well, what are you doing, Ben? And I'm perceived as being serious because I had a particular kind of job. And people say, well, why, why would you enjoy watching Zoolander? Why can't both things are... Yes, I agree. ...can be true, right? I, we, we shouldn't be put in boxes. You agree with that? Totally agree. And yeah, I think people, you know, obviously they, they define you by how they, you know, how they see you and what they know of you. And, um, you know, I think it's actually great that someone like you who you have this gravitas and people look to you because... Not they, anymore. Well, you had this gravitas and <laughs> you were willing to just... <laughs> Um, but it's, but it's, you know, it is human. It's human and everybody is human. And it's like what you're saying, the shut up and dribble thing. It's like, we should all be able to be full human beings who have opinions and different sides of us. And, um, I do think, uh, it, but it is interesting when someone who, when you see that someone has a sense of humor who you consider is very serious. I mean, you have a sense of humor in what you do, but you deal with serious subjects. Um, but I always feel like even dramatic actors who are really, good always have humor in their work you know de niro people like that they always have even taxi driver their funny moments in what he's doing have you have you ever met a serious person thinking person who is yes. thoroughly humorless oh who's who's oh um, yeah have you have you met humorless people yeah there, who are, I think successful there are people no there are people who take themselves seriously I think we all know people who take themselves seriously, um, and which is funny, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, because that's when someone doesn't have that sense of uh, self-deprecation or just that sense of themselves, it's, you know, that's, that's when they're ripe to be, really to be parodied or, or to be made fun of, because it's, you know, it's almost like they're asking for it. Did you learn to be funny because of your parents? Uh, I... 
I mean, my parents were so funny and naturally funny as people, and and made a living, made a living being that way, yes. and are and were famous people. Yeah. Did you ever feel you should do a different thing? Yeah, that's what I thought when I was a kid. I, you know, you never want to be your parents when you're a kid. You want to, you know, be your own person. And we were around it all the time. The, and it, it was great. And I loved show business and being around watching them do their thing and going to nightclubs and seeing them do television shows and um, hanging out and staying up late and, you know, uh, having funny people uh, in our lives. And all that was great. But as a kid, I was like, I want to make movies. I want to be a serious filmmaker. Then, like, I thought I wanted to be a serious actor. Um, and that's kind of, and then I, but you know, then I found my, it's also, I didn't find my parents that funny when I was a kid because you don't find, you know, they're your parents. Oh, I know the feeling. <laughs> um, but you know, so, so I appreciated them, but you don't, I, for me, I didn't really appreciate my parents' humor until I was older because I was so wrapped up in kind of figuring out who I was. And, and part of it was also having to kind of figure out how to, find my own way because they were really well known and people, you know, really liked them and, you know, had this sense of them. So it, it's hard. You can't be anonymous when you're starting out as the kid of somebody who's famous. And um, that's, you know, you can like when you fail, it's a little bit more yeah. public. If, if they if you had not had famous, funny, performing parents, do you think you might have still gone into acting but been a serious actor? I don't know. I don't think I would have ever, I probably, it, it, I can't even imagine it because it was so much a part of my life since I was a kid. So I never thought about anything else. So if my parents were not in show business or not actors, I don't know what that life would have been. It was just part of the fabric of our lives. So it was just always yeah. there. Do you, in, given what's going on in the world today and maybe the most watched human on earth is Volodymyr Zelensky, who... I think people know, began as a comic actor of great acclaim in his country, a little bit like you. <laughs> do you. Do you regret that you did not set upon a path to become the leader of a nation state? <laughs> I'm not finished yet. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> but... Lots of people have commented on this, but I have not heard the comment of someone who was in his position some years ago. Like, how, how do you think about Zelensky having been in his country kind of what you were here in his arc? It's incredible. I mean, first of all, it's incredible what he's doing and, and what he's representing. And also, I think what he's had to go through over the last few years. I mean, what we watched happen from our point of view um, through the Trump administration, and then him being faced with this huge challenge and how he stepped up and become this symbol of courage. And it's, it's incredible. And him being an actor uh, and a guy who came out of comedy. Um, you know, he must have had inside of him this, you know, feeling for his country and this desire to... It doesn't seem, you know, I don't know how if he wanted to be taken seriously. He just seems like he had a real desire. He's taken seriously now. Yeah, and, yeah. and he obviously was very connected to wanting to do something that meant something to him. And, you know, I think the difference, though, is when you look at people who are driven by ego, just watching him and, you know, listening to him, it doesn't seem like he's driven by ego. It seems like he's driven by a love of his country. I'm going to tick a couple of things off. 
You have raised money for Somalia. You have helped build schools in Haiti. You have, you have raised money to fight ALS. You have visited Syria and gone all over the world to champion the cause of refugees. As I said earlier, you're a goodwill ambassador for the UN Refugee Agency. You have testified in the US Senate. You've done all these things as a humanitarian. That is not well known. It is not a secret, but it is not well known. And I wonder, is that by design? Do you, do you feel some discomfort in broadcasting this good work that you do? Uh, I don't, no, I mean, I don't think about it that way. It's not like I'm worrying about how it's perceived. I think you do it because you want to do something to be helpful. And uh, one of the realities of being somebody who is known is that you have an opportunity to amplify voices and, and that's, you know, you, if you want to, if, that, if that's important to you to, to try to make a change in some way, then it's an opportunity to do that. So I don't, I, it's, well, I think it's dangerous because you can, we're talking about ego, it, it can, you can get caught up in that. I think we're all human beings, so we all have egos and we all, it feels good to have yeah. people like us or to approve but of I, something we're doing. I want to push on that for a second because you said, I think this is in a New Yorker interview from 10 years ago when you were doing some of this work and you were helping to build schools in Haiti and you were so struck and moved by the devastation there. I thought this was very telling. You said, you don't want to be the person you used to make fun of and quote, the actor who does good works. At that point in your life, a decade ago, what was it about the actor who does good works that made you feel a little bit funny? I think it's, it's honestly uh, a cynicism probably that was part of, for me growing up uh, in show business and seeing the, the uh, backstage life and the underside of showbiz and seeing how people, uh, I think, sometimes can manipulate things in a way to try to bring the attention on themselves, maybe... Uh, for the wrong reasons. I mean, for me, the humor, shows like um, Saturday Night Live or SCTV, where they would satirize, you're talking about like making fun of people who take themselves seriously. Um, it's so easy to, you know, satirize the Jerry Lewis telethon and Jerry Lewis doing, you know, what he did. I mean, but no question, the work he did, you know, helped many, many people. But it, it almost became a, a showbiz cliche because people would look at it as, oh, you know, look at us patting ourselves on the back. And um, I just grew up around that and very sensitive to that. And probably to my own detriment, because I think I would be more judgmental of people who are doing something good and thinking, oh, well, I don't know if they're for real or not. You know, like it, watching but, Sally Struthers yeah. as a kid, you know. With but you kids. are for real. Yeah, but I mean. We're, that, which, but you're, you're, but you're, it's interesting to me, because I've been thinking about it for the last few weeks. And when we spoke in advance of the interview, you are for real. You care about it. And, and I wonder, do you think you should leave that concern behind? I think you have to leave that concern behind when you do something because nowadays everybody is judging everything yeah. and everybody's going to have a point of view. And it's just too much to care about. So you just want to do what you, what you feel right about and what you think is going to be most helpful. And sometimes it's hard with this kind of work because you're looking for, uh, or I'm looking sometimes for some sort of comedic angle on it. But it's very hard to find the comedic angle when you're talking about people whose lives are turned upside down and are, you know, in dire need of help. So how do you make that funny without being, you know, although you've, you've said that even in this humanitarian work you do, humor is important. 
and you find a way to make people laugh. D- explain that. Um, I, I think, yeah, you just have to try to somehow connect with people. I mean, the, the, a lot of the work with UNHCR is just trying to tell stories of people who we see as statistics mainly. You know, when you hear there are 80 million displaced people in the world, 80 million, it's just such an overwhelming number. Um, unless you can humanize that uh, statistic in some way, tell their story, you know, uh, show them as, as a mother, a father, a, and a family who are dealing with the same issues we're all dealing with. And part of that is humor. So I still haven't figured out how to be funny in that way. Honestly, I, I'm still trying, but... My suggestion would be to go blue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't issue me a subpoena. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, but I mean, it's, I'm trying to do it in the things that I produce, uh, with our production company. You know, we have a couple of shows. No, I was going to ask you about that. So, so you've done all these movies that bring people a lot of joy, make people laugh. Like some significant percentage of my laughter at a movie theater or in front of a television is directly due to you. So thank you for that. But you have a couple, so I'll ask you about a couple of them. You have one, uh, where we have some tiny, small connection you and I both gave positive blurbs to Rachel Maddow's book, Bagman. Can you talk about what's yeah. happening with that? Which is much more political than what you've done before. Yeah, I mean, I was really taken with that podcast, and I didn't really know the story about uh, Agnew and how he had to resign, and, and the U.S. attorneys, the uh, assistant U.S. attorneys who were really responsible for making that happen. And so I, re- I listened to the podcast. I was re- really moving. And I thought, oh, wow, this is a story I'd love to try to tell as a movie. So I reached out to Rachel and Mike Yarvitz. And, as of, you know, it's been a couple of years, but now we're finally about to make the movie. We're about to start shooting the movie. Yeah, I'm excited about it. And then the other thing, which is super interesting, is given your, your work and interest and belief in refu- the refugee issue, you're making a an American version of a UK series called Home that's about a Syrian refugee and it's a sitcom. Yeah. Explain that. Yeah, I mean, again, trying to find ways to tell these stories that can that people can connect with. And uh, this British series uh, was, I thought, really, really funny and moving about a, a Syrian refugee who comes to live with a family in England. And uh, it became a, really a relationship comedy. But it was a way of, again, telling the story in a human way that people could connect with. And you sort of forget that you're telling a refugee story because people are more than just refugees. They're, they're people. They're artists. They're, you know, they're lawyers. They're doctors. They're people who have regular lives not necessarily poor, who's are just, you know, their lives are turned upside down due to circumstances beyond their control. So I thought, oh, let's try to do that story here. So we're developing that for uh, Apple. And then we're also developing a story called Ten Borders uh, as a limited series, which is the story of a couple of Syrian refugees leaving Syria and finally getting to a resettlement somewhere in the U.S. So I'm going to ask this. So I have mixed feelings about this. Does this represent sort of a shift for Ben Stiller in favor of these kinds of more um, serious and political projects? Does that mean no more dodgeball? Because I really love dodgeball too, <laughs> like a lot. Can you do both of these things or are, are you serious, Ben, now? Um, I mean, refugees can play dodgeball, so it's okay, <laughs> right? In fact, they do. Yeah. Um, 
No, I'm I'm all for comedy. I just I haven't acted for a few years. N- not why not? Really. Why not? Why why is that? Because I've really you look great. Thank you. Thanks. I was I got some sun. I was in California. I got out of the. Uh, oh, thank you, thank you. Um, no, I just I've been focusing on directing and these directing projects. The last two things I've done. Oh, you should talk. Well, so you should talk about yeah this mind blowing show. I don't want to oversimplify it, but but the premise and it's not a comedy. Although there are funny there, moments. I think there's humor in it. 100%. Okay. Yeah. But it is not a comedy. A world in which if you work for a particular company, your work memory is segregated from your home memory. So when you show up for work, you go in the elevator, and then you have no memory of whether you're married, whether you have kids, like anything going on in your private life, and then vice versa the other way around, which is an extreme way of considering the solution to the work-life balance. And you're directing this. Yeah. It's excellent. But it's no dodgeball. <laughs> what was your attraction to this? <laughs> I mean, I just thought it was a fascinating concept. And the script actually, when I, I read it, I got it five years ago. And it was a writing sample from a writer who hadn't had anything produced. And I just thought the concept was amazing. And his writing was really, actually was funny to me. Because it reminded me of shows like The Office or comedies like Office Space, yeah. and this genre of office comedy that's developed over the last 20 years. And then I, you know, then it had this other abstract elements like, oh, these people are kind of in this workaday life, you know, the office drudgery, but they don't know who they are, why they're there, what they're doing, or anything else about their lives, which is sort of like a metaphor for life, I think. <laughs> and um, I, thought it, I thought it would be funnier, probably, when I was when I was making it. <laughs> and then it got like weird. I mean, I've like... laughed a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but I like, I like doing but, stuff but it's that's not, not... it's not the zipper right. scene and but, there's something about Mary. Right. And look, comedy is hard. It's really challenging. Um, and it's, I think, one of the most challenging things in, you know, in the arts because... Isn't it the most? I think You because, can go ahead and say it's the most challenging thing. Well, it's just because it's not really open for interpretation. You'll do a, a show, you'll you know, do a movie, people sit in the audience, they'll either laugh or they won't laugh. It's very binary. So it's, it's the pressure is if you say you're making a comedy, people want to go there to laugh. And a lot of times I would make movies and I'd try to do lots of different things, but if they were sort of billed as a comedy, that was the, the bottom line is that that's what people care about. And I understand that because I love to laugh too. But I also like not having that pressure. And then when the humor comes into something that you're making that's not necessarily a comedy, it can kind of be appreciated in a way more because there's no pressure on it to have to be funny. That being said, I, I do sometimes feel when I'm doing not comedy that it's like cheating a little bit because... Is it easier? Because it because it's easier because you're not going to have that 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 judgment of like are they laughing or not? Does that make sense? It makes total yeah. sense. But it, when you talk to directors or actors of the non-comic variety, would they agree with you or be irritated by your suggestion that what they do is well, easier? Make no mistake. I'm not saying what they do is easy. No, but I think you might be right. <laughs> Stick to your guns, <laughs> Ben. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm just saying. All De Niro. Of De Niro can do both, though. De Niro's, yeah. De Niro, De Niro can do both. De Niro can do anything he wants. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's all of it is challenging because you're trying to do something that resonates with people, and people will yeah. judge whether or not it resonates with them. So you have to try to be honest, and you have to try to, you can't think about pleasing an audience. You have to think about what, what resonates with you. I think that's the only really way that you can judge what 
otherwise you're thinking, oh, what are they gonna think? And, and it's impossible. But it's all challenging. But the comedy part of it is, it's harder to get something that everybody thinks is funny. Like, I loved SCTV. I don't know how many people watched SCTV back in the day. Yeah, it's a very smart, sophisticated crowd. Oh, they are. Um, but you know, that wasn't like a mainstream success, but look at the amazing work and people that came out of that show. The alumni, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Um, John Candy, Eugene Levy, and you know, Catherine O'Hara, you know, so many amazing people. So, you know, but there's, there's different uh, niche comedy for different people, but then there's certain things that everybody loves too. Because I do think comedy is harder in some ways, right? It seems to me, tell me if this is correct. You can always summon up pain and write something sad or serious with your screenwriter or summon up something that was bad in your life to do that scene. I don't know, I'm not an actor, I'm not a screenwriter. But if you have bad things going on in your life and you've had that on occasion, you're a human being with relationships and career issues, but then you gotta sit down and write or direct something that's supposed to be like silly and funny, how hard is that? Well, you have to have fun while you're doing it. That's the key. But if you're sad, if you happen to be in a sad point in your life, right, and your assignment is to do funny stuff at work, how does that go? Not great. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's, <laughs> right. But that's what professional comedians do. Yeah. I mean, smile though your heart is breaking. <laughs> yeah. I no, mean, I it's kind of like it's it's a tough it's a tough job, but I think the best people take their experience and take their pain. And they work, and they use that in their work, in their in their material. You know, that's that's what you do. Because comedy is, you know, tragedy plus time. I think was the yes, yeah, that is. But exactly. it, that's it's, um, not really that simple. But it, you know, it is. It's about it's about personally connecting with something that's very true for you, and that's where you find the universal connection with people. I think that that's right. We'll be right back with more of the Stay Tuned Live show after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking... What does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com slash Preet. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash Preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. We're going to call out our next guest, and you're going to stay with us. Okay. And heckle, as you as you see fit. Uh, Gary Kasparov uh, is likely the best chess player in the history of the world. Gary was ranked number one 
in the world for 19 years. Uh, he is now, and has been for a long time, a human rights activist and watcher of Russia, and in particular, Putin. He's the chair of the Renew Democracy Initiative and the Human Rights Foundation. And as I'm, I'm sure you know, he's been a profoundly important voice on everything going on right now in Ukraine and Russia. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Gary Kasparov. So I want to start a little bit where Ben and I left off. You are a, and I love it, a prolific user of Twitter. If you don't follow, follow Gary Kasparov, Kasparov, by the way, you, you really need to, particularly in these times. And you have a lot of earnest and hyper-intelligent tweets about policy and about NATO and about deterrence. But you also have tweets uh, that explain to us Russian jokes on the internet, <laughs> right? Yes. And it's very, no, this is, it's, and you and I have talked about this over the years, the importance of humor in all of this. We'll, we'll get to bombs and missiles and MiG jets in a moment, but you keep posting things that mock the Russian lack of success. And you, I'll just give you an example of one. You tweeted, Russian internet joke, quote, we are now entering day 24 of the special military operation to take Kiev in two days. <laughs> and, and, and just before you answer, you and I, and we've had many conversations over the years, and we talked about something that Nick Kristof said, quote, Shaking one's fist at a leader doesn't win people over as much as making that leader a laughingstock. What is the role of humor and mockery and satire when it comes to autocracy generally and Putin specifically? Uh, yeah, I grew up in the Soviet Union and uh, there was no freedom of press. That's why all the criticism was what we called the kitchen humor. So people could talk in the kitchens and, you know, exchange jokes. And uh, it was, um, you know, uh, it was very mm, well-developed, quote-unquote, industry. Uh, and then, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, these jokes have gone. Because, yeah, you, had, you could criticize the government on television, so this is why do you need jokes? And the, the first indicator, for those who followed Russian politics, the first indicator of the problem was the reappearance of jokes. So the moment you saw jokes, you know, about Putin, you recognize that, you know, it's like a balance, you know, you have two vessels. And then so that's, that's, all of a sudden you could see that there's more and more jokes, you know, this went in the shadow. And now, of course, you know, everything is in the shadow. So because it's the, if you, if you say war in Ukraine, three years in jail. If you want to talk about real losses of Russian army, up to 15 years in jail. Those are just recent laws stand by Putin's puppet parliament. But speaking about jokes, I can have another one. <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's an exchange in Russia because, oh, what's happening in Ukraine? Special operation. Oh, no, actually, it's a war. War against Ukraine? No, it's war against NATO. So what's happening? Oh, we lost 15,000 soldiers, 600 tanks, 150 planes. And what about NATO? 
NATO hasn't started fighting yet. <laughs> it's, but again, every, as we say in Russia, every joke has an element of a joke. Because that's a true you know, it's a reflection of Russian propaganda. So for, for Putin and for Russian propaganda, it's war against NATO. So that's why when I hear people saying, oh, we have to avoid escalation. I mean, you may ignore it, but it's this, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And of course, you know, that's, that's where for Putin, you know, this justifying the war, you know, he had to come up with some big ideas. And this is one was the denazification. I mean, denazification of the country, the only country but Israel with a Jewish head of the state. That's, that's tough. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> but you know, many in Russia, fact is that when, when just you, you, you look at the, at the public response, you know, so a lot of people believe in it because people say, how come, you know, this is Russian people are so stupid. So look, in 1944, 1945, so many Germans were willing to die for Führer. I mean, it was, it, the, the outcome was clear. And it was only 12 years. 12 years of Goebbels propaganda and not the same technology available. Now we have 22 years. So it's tough. And uh, you know, it's, uh, you had only one TV channel here and, and a Twitter. And half of Americans believe that, you know, that's, that's, that's the FBI is just, you know, is, 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 uh, is, is worse than KGB. Uh, so it's- can I, can, I, can I ask you about Putin? And you've said a lot about him. You seem to have a sense of him. How is it that he blundered so badly? And I think you have said over time that he has always been overestimated. Has he gotten dumber? Has he gotten crazier? But by everyone's estimation, this invasion of Ukraine was a colossal mistake. How can someone who a lot of people, including the former president of the United States, who called him savvy. What happened here? Um, every dictator in the past made the same mistake. And this mistake is dictated by impunity. Now, I don't think that Putin made any mistake except one only. So, because how is he wrong about his invasion of Ukraine? So he was in power for more than 20 years. He, he was not secretive about his plans to redesign geopolitical map of Europe and the world. We can blame him for many crimes, uh, uh, but not for being secretive about his plans. So he was very blunt, as Adolf Hitler was, by the way. It's just, you know, nobody was wanted to, to listen to him. He had already, you know, enough, uh, enough crimes, you know, blood on his hands, in his first uh, two terms, you know, and, uh, uh, in the beginning of the century. Uh, but in 2007, in Munich, at the security conference in Europe, he publicly said about the, um, his vision of the future, and he used specific words, spheres of influence. For those who are younger, I can remind you, that's exactly the language from Molotov-Ribbentrop, 1939. That's when Stalin and Hitler divided Europe. and. Uh, uh, and he talked about NATO going back to 1997 borders. He said Russia had its place, you know, in these uh, new geopolitical uh, security arrangements. And uh, Baltic states and other Eastern European states, they have to obey. So Russia had rights to dictate the terms for those near abroad, so-called the term for, for the Soviet republics. 
and nobody wanted to hear him. Yes, but he said it. When, when he believed, and his advisors told him, am I correct, that if you go into Ukraine, not only will no one stop you, but you will overrun the country in two or three days. That was wrong. How did he make that mistake? Okay, that's the... So, his calculation was based on... Okay, 2007 speech, 2008 aggression against the Republic of Georgia, 2014 annexation of Crimea, no consequences, 2015 helping Bashar al-Assad carpet bombing Aleppo. Again, a long list of things. Now, from his perspectives, he had 200,000 troops surrounding Ukraine. He brought the right. Pacific fleet to the Black right. Sea. But so, is, are you, is his, was his mistake his, relying on his track record? But it's, he was not the only one making mistake. Who Can else? I remind you that American intelligence predicted the fall of Kiev in 96 hours? Yeah. He was right. not alone. So everybody expected Russia to win. The, the, when Western politicians and, and pundits, political pundits, talked about Ukraine, they talked about Afghanistan and, and, and Vietnam because they thought Ukrainian army would be destroyed in the first week, and then it's, it's guerrilla war. That's why all the equipment that America supplied to Ukraine is, is for guerrilla war. So just it's two attack tanks, you know, uh, or, or, right. or helicopters. So was all of this a massive underestimation of Ukraine? It's massive underestimation of will of free people. That's the mistake yeah. that every dictator made. But what is tragic that the same underestimation, the same mistake was made on, uh, you know, on the side of the free world. So, and, uh, and Putin thought, okay, I'm in Kyiv, three, four days. They already prepared, you know, already the military parade, same way that Hitler did in Paris. They already had a special military uniform. So they wanted to desecrate uh, Maidan, so as a symbol of freedom. So it all was there. So the plan, and let me tell you, if, God forbid, he who could have succeeded, he would be back to negotiating table with the same Europeans, with the same uh, 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 Americans. So trying to save what they could have saved. Now, heroic resistance of Ukrainians plus the response of the free world, of the public. So all of a sudden, Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, the country that had been like a, a stronghold of Putin in Europe, that did absolutely everything to put Europe on the, on the gas hook. So just make sure that Putin is the only supplier of gas. So Schroeder and Angela Merkel. So Olaf Scholz, new Chancellor, looked at the numbers, polls, 90% of Germans. And by the way, it's important, Germany actually, Germany changed everything in Europe because I think psychologically, for Germans, it was a shock. Uh, but there's a kind of positive shock. It erased, not erased, but it, it basically relieved them from this historical fall. They saw fascism coming from the other side. All of a sudden, they saw that it's, it's not us. It's, we have to help people that being, being ruined by being destroyed, by being attacked. 90% immediate shift. And, and Germany now is, it played, is still playing a key role in shifting Europe because in 48 hours, Europe changes position on sanctions. And by the way, if you look at the sanctions today, Europe is ahead of America. Just trust me. So America is leading from behind. So it's, it's, I'm not saying it was easy hard because I believe in American global leadership, but not in Ukraine so far. It's so the Americans catching up, but I, I hope it could do much more. I want to go back to Putin. And this is, at the top of mind, for not just people in the West, but everywhere, given that he's not doing well, his expectations have not been met, he's backed into a corner, he's up against the wall, and people talk about two things. And I know you've addressed this. 
the possibility of using a tactical nuclear weapon and the possibility of using chemical weapons, high, low, medium, and what would be the consequence? Look, you're right. So he's, he, he recognized in three or four days that he couldn't win the war, it, no, no blitzkrieg. Then he shifted to his traditional tactics, shelling at civilians. So it's, when people say indiscriminate, I say, no, 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 it's intentional. That's, that's what they did in Grozny in 2000. That's what they did in Aleppo. If I show the pictures of, of Grozny, Aleppo, and Mariupol, you may not, you know, identify which one it is. So it's an intentional shelling because they wanted to bombard Ukrainians into submission. By the way, it's also not working now. So that's why you see them retreating. They're trying to actually change their plans because Ukrainians proved to be not just resilient, but they so are. So that means the, the likelihood of nukes is medium? I want to know about the nukes, Gary. Look, this is the, okay, fine. This is, that's the, look, uh, now, we're talking about tactical nukes, not, not strategic All tactics. nukes, no, 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 but let's, let's start with let's, tactical. Let's, should we start better? Should we start with the tactical nukes? No, but this is... Okay, is, okay. is, is it, isn't a nuke a nuke? You know, yes. The answer is yes, and the keys... By the way, this, the tactical nuclear, nuclear weapon is being just you know, designed to actually to solve local, local problems. Strategic is basically, it's, it's intercontinental. So that's to destroy the whole planet. So the, the way the tactical nukes... But yeah, it, isn't it once one's, one's, one's out of the bottle? No, it's not, look, it, it is escalation, you know, it's, it's not, not automatic. So, because it's the, look, technically it doesn't mean that we're all going to die. Yes. Technically, it doesn't mean we're all going to die. No, no, tactical, tactical, oh, tactically. Nukes, tactical nukes. But this is the, now. Both of those are bad. Can Putin push the button? I don't know. I would say it's not 50-50, but it's definitely not slim to none. But. Wait, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. It's between zero and 50? No, I said it would say 10 to 20 percent. 10 push the to 20, button. you believe? No, but it's the, but let's say this is he can push the button. That's why I say, but then, you know, you go in the chain of command. Because this is the, when and how this, the, the, this uh, unthinkable can happen. It's only if he and, and those who will have to carry his orders will believe that they are immune to the response. So that's why I do not buy the arguments from, from Americans or other NATO allies saying, look, you know, we don't want an escalation because it can provoke them. You don't have to provoke Putin. If he wants to a war, he'll get a war. But the key is, it's, just, it's not about him. It's about Russian generals and admirals that will have to carry this order. And no, so, so, but I want to ask, so, so what is, what is the, the, the basis for optimism based on what's happened so far? I, mean, I, I see some examples of this, but what is your basis for optimism that if he gave that terrible order, that he would be defied. Uh, this is, by the way, I, I'm not trying to be optimistic here. We're no. not here. Uh, that's very we're clear. We're not, you know, we're not, we're not in comedy <laughs> cellar here. So it's the, yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm talking about, this is, this is since we are talking about chess, this is not this more like a geopolitical poker. We just have to look at the probabilities. I'm not telling you that the chances uh, that's, that he will, he will push the button and use the nukes or, or chemical, just they are, they are too low to, to, no, to, no. to ignore All them. I'm asking is, but it's, what, it's what's your basis for, for, for belief that there might be some resistance to him? But we have to shift from him to us. The question is, what should we do to minimize the risk? Now, I'm just, you know, in our, uh, as you saw from my, my Twitter, I'm in violent disagreement with those who say we have to appease him. We have to show weakness. No. Well, they don't say appease. No, they, they, they do. They don't they say do. weakness. Abs that's, no, no, they, they do. They say, oh, no, no, we cannot fight, you know, on Ukrainian soil. I mean, why? I mean, why NATO cannot close the skies? So this is the, 
You know, when oh, they say, ah, you have to tell American public that closing the sky means, you know, that it's uh, American, 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 American pilots, you know, should start, you know, consider risk of air combat with Russian troops. I said, yes, with Russian pilots. But just, you know, please, uh, please finish the sentence to stop the massacre of innocent civilians. Yeah. Uh, that's the, look, and, and uh, by the way, how are you going, if you are afraid of any conflict with, with Russians, how are you going to defend NATO? Because when they say, no, no fight in Ukraine, but we will defend every inch of NATO territory. How are you going to defend Poland or Lithuania? They will not be attacked by, by Martians. They will be attacked by the same Russians. So if you are afraid of confrontation, what's the difference? Oh, Lithuania is much smaller, you know, and, 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 and the road to Vilnius is much shorter than to Kiev. So again, it says it's about, it's about resolve and political will. This is the only way to stop a dictator. Dictator never stops until he's stopped. And that's what is not being recognized on this side of the Atlantic. So one bit of evidence that maybe there would be defiance on the part of Putin's generals and others who would not agree to an order might be, tell me if you think this is correct, these reports that have been swirling around that they're not giving Putin the truth, that Putin himself is being lied to about the lack of success in Ukraine, which is, by the way, a very odd thing, because we all understand and have understood uh, from reporting for a while that the Russian people are not being told the truth by the Russian government. And you, so you think of it as the Russian government, they know the truth, but they're not letting the truth be known to the people. But there are also reports that Putin himself, who's the head of the government, may be being lied to by his generals. Does that weigh in on this in any way, shape, or form? Do you buy that? Uh, I will be very cautious analyzing these kind of rumors, even if they are assigned to American intelligence, the same intelligence that predicted the fall of Kiev in 96 hours. But it's the same um, intelligence that yeah, predicts it's the same intelligence. The same intelligence they, have no, they have zero idea what's happening in the bunker. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's the same kind of old criminologists. They decided, oh, they, they, they looked at the position of the members of Polydrome Mausoleum during military parades, uh, how close this person is to Stalin or Brezhnev, and then made their conclusions. Right. It right. just, it's, it's, Th that's it's, all it's true. And I, best and, I, and, I'm, and I'm not a defender of American intelligence because they made mistakes, but they were correct, right? They were correct when everyone else thought it was implausible. They were correct that Putin planned to launch a full on invasion. Of Ukraine, were they not correct? Oh, if if you again, let me repeat: if you have a dictator with blood on his hands and the record of violating territories of other countries, collecting two hundred thousand troops surrounding the country, bringing Pacific fleet to the Black Sea, and saying many times Ukraine was not a real state and we have to take this 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 country off the map, I think that you have to believe him. I did, by the way. For many years, I've been saying it would happen, you know, and I didn't have any 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 access to to to, to um, I, I, information. I totally take your point, and I'm who am I to argue with Gary Kasparov? And all that you say makes total sense, but lots and lots of people, lots of people, including the Ukrainian people, and officials in Ukraine, did not believe the invasion was going to happen. They thought it was saber rattling, so we can move on from that. But lots and lots of people who are in high position, maybe don't deserve those high positions, didn't think there would be a full invasion of Ukraine. Look, I am a regular guest on many Ukrainian shows. I can tell you that you're right. Four or five days before the invasion, I was on one of the shows, 
And I was attacked, viciously attacked by one of the Ukrainian experts, saying that people like me, you know, spreading panics, and it's, it's, it's so damaging for Ukrainian economy. And I said, look, you're dealing with, with a monster. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I, I, I would love to be wrong, so just prove me wrong. But if I'm right, you will see the hell. So please, you know, just take my word seriously, you know, just, yes, yeah, spend a little bit more time on, on defending your country. By the way, if American intelligence, you know, kept telling about it, why no weapons have been supplied to Ukraine prior to the invasion? Why no sanctions have been implemented prior to the Some sanctions that could have so, stopped tanks, because t t sanctions cannot stop tanks when, they sh when they're shelling, cannot stop planes when they're dropping bombs, but maybe they could send a message to Putin by doing something prior to the invasion, if, as you say, American intelligence convinced White House that it was a real threat. So you've talked about sanctions, and I'm with you on the idea that we have to level the strongest sanctions we've ever seen. You used a phrase, you said, we need to send Russia back to the Stone Age. There are people who, what do you say to the people who say, well, these sanctions hurt you know, ordinary innocent Russians who are not at fault here when their government has led the country astray. How do you think about that question? It's bad news. Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry for my compatriots, but they deserve it because it's not Mariupol. You know, this is, that's the, it's, it's a war. They, yes, they have some problems with food, but it's not Mariupol, it's not Kharkov, it's not Izum. So it's a different story. So it's the, it's, we all, we all in Russia. I'm the last person who could, who would blame myself for, you know, being responsible for the war. I've been criticizing Putin for 20 plus years. But even I, when I talk to Ukrainians, I feel ashamed because I'm Russian. And I think it's as this is, the, the argument doesn't work, doesn't fly. So you, you don't go to the streets? Yes, I understand it's tough, you know, but by the way, hundreds of thousands of Russians made to the streets, 16,000 Russians being arrested now. Yes, and many of them will end, will end, you know, in jail for years protesting against the war. So the other millions that didn't want to go there, so you have to suffer because that's the only way to save Ukraine and by the way, the, the rest of the world. That's, that's a war. So uh, they, nobody's bombing them. So they, they, they may have not, you know, enough, you know, uh, 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 comfort that they used to have. But it, again, it's not the same as Ukraine. As we speak now, people being killed, innocent civilians. They are sh they're shooting at them, shelling them intentionally. So it's just, I think it's just, again, it's, 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 it's very hard to imagine. It's, it's 2022. And it's, uh, for me, it's like, you know, going back into the war movies. Uh, it's, so, uh, the only way to end this war is for, 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 to help Ukraine to win. This, the, who will die? Again, who fight will, or die. It's, 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 look, whether it's fight or die, you know, this is, you're not dying. You're sitting here, for God's sake. People dying in Ukraine. So nobody's asking American boots on the ground. What Ukraine has been asking is weapons that are not being given to them. So what, why not give them... Uh, long-range missiles that could sh hit Russian ships that are shelling Ukrainian cities with, with, uh, uh, with, with this very, very powerful missiles from, from afar, from a safe distance. Ukraine has been begging to close the skies. Not, you don't want to close the skies, give them, you know, uh, um, this air defense. It's not there. You, by the way, today, there's the first, first sign. Britain offered, you know, some, some sophisticated weapons to Ukraine. It's a, it's a first shipment that's on the way, but it's not America again. So fighting Ukraine is not just fight for Ukrainian territorial so, uh, uh, integrity or sovereignty of the state. It's a fight between tyranny and democracy, tyranny and freedom.
It's a fight between good and evil. You, you, if you want to watch the movies, it's, it's Gondor standing against Mordor. And we all, you know, we all have, it's our duty to, 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 to help them with any, with any means we can. And we can. And we're, do, we're doing a lot, but not enough. Because the only way for this war to end and, 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 and for Russia to become, hopefully one day, you know, just prosperous democratic country, is for Ukraine to win the war. Because that will be the end of Putin's regime. And that's what we all need to succeed in our battle against global evil. Do you think the way we talk about politicians' statements is a bit silly? And what I'm thinking about is all this debate about Joe Biden saying, ad-libbing, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. And I've seen, and I respect you, and I, I tend to agree with you, but there are lots of people who I also respect who called this a gaffe, said it was a mistake, it had to be walked back by the president's staff. Isn't that true on its face? For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Do we quibble about silly stuff? I'm asking him. <laughs> Although your opinion is, is very important. I'm probably the wrong person to, to, to make this judgment. <laughs> because look, you, you don't have opinions. I'm I'm old enough to re, I'm old enough to remember another president saying evil empire. Yeah. Yeah, in nineteen eighty three. Harshly criticized. Look, it did work. So it's the I uh I think it's very important for you as president to show this leadership. The problem is not what Biden said. I think his heart is in the right place. He grew up during the Cold War. He just is old enough to remember these days. And I it's I think he said it because he heard the stories, first-hand stories from the refugees. He could smell this this the the ashes of war there being at the border. So he said it. But the problem is that immediately the State Department and others, they just you know came back, you know, trying to backtrack it. That's that's, that's really bad because that sends Putin a signal yeah. that it's, it, there's no unity. So right. we know it's, it's but then, it, but there's then no Biden, unity. But then when Biden was asked again, he, he said but, it again. Was that right? It, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, but he has to control his administration. He has to, put, you know, he has to push it through you know, because that's what people want to hear, American leadership. Because it's, you, know, you can't pretend that you are no longer part of this globalization. So it's, it's a global fight. And America is it's not protected by two oceans any, 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 anymore. So it's important to actually set up the goals for the war. But again, United States and European allies yet to actually finalize it. They yet to say the goal of the war for Ukraine to win. The great goal of the war to restore Ukrainian territorial integrity. So you don't even have to talk about Putin's collapse because the moment Crimea returns to Ukraine, Putin is finished. That's, that's it. You know, that's, that's it. And sanctions will stay until Ukrainian territorial integrity has been fully restored. That's the key message. That's the message you ask, you ask me about Russian generals and Russian admirals and Russian elite. That's the message they have to hear. They have to understand that with Putin, no future. Because the moment he gives this command, ultimate command, then you have every admiral general thinking, okay, I push the button in five minutes, the NATO yeah. missile comes back. Also, those who say closing skies, it's too dangerous. 
I don't believe for a second you will have many, if any, Russian pilots that would like to play kamikaze. They are very brave, you know, bombing, you know, uh, uh, civilians. Meeting NATO jets in air, not so much. Not so much. <laughs> I need to ask you a final question before we bring out uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman. Please make your answer brief but complete. <laughs> and in 60 seconds, explain to us how does this end? Does Putin leave? Can Putin leave and save face and retain some of the taken Ukrainian land? Or no? You want a very brief answer? Please. Okay. There will be no peace as long as Putin stays in power. Yeah. So, I lied. That was not my last question. Do, do, you have, do you have some reason to believe or hope that, for God's sakes, this man can't remain in power and that there is some movement afoot to take care of that in Russia? Uh, there is the, the order of moves. Military defeat in Ukraine. That's the, uh, like a verdict for every dictatorship. Social economic revolt in Russia due to the sanctions, and then palace coup, not the other around. So he will be taken care, quote unquote, by his own cronies when they see no way out. So, and typically, you know, that's the, the moment comes when they look for a scapegoat, and usually it's dictator yourself. But you need to make sure military defeat comes first. That's, you know, that's, it's, every dictatorship is based on mythology. Crimea and, and Ukrainian con conquest is a Putin's mythology. If you take it away, there's no foundation for, for, for ideological foundation. And has, last one, has, uh, has, has, the, has the mythology been undone a bit in the last four weeks? Uh, not yet, because Russian army is not yet defeated. So it's, it's, it's exhausted, you know. Eight it's, generals it, are dead. Yes, eight, yes. Look, Seven look, or eight. No, 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 the, 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 uh, the losses are huge. But still, don't forget, he's bringing more and more resources. 75% of the entire Russian army now, it's either in Ukraine or in its surroundings. 75%. Right. So they're bringing troops from the military bases, Tajikistan, the Republic of Georgia, Armenia, more troops from the Far East. So Russia still has military resources to, to actually to throw. This is, that's the, uh, um, uh, uh, in, into this, into the fire war. Uh, so that's why it's, we know that he failed at the first stage of the war. So, but it's not so clear for people in Russia who are just listening to Russian television. And it's the, and by the way, their army is not yet defeated. So they're still trying to, to, to take at least, you know, maybe not half of Ukraine now, but one third of Ukraine. And they're still occupying territories. And again, it says they are very good at shooting civilians. So they, they yeah. know that this is the way to actually to destroy the cycle of, of, of the, uh, of their opponents. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. We're going to see if the next guest agrees with you. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vinman, as you may know, was born in Ukraine, left at the age of three, came to the United States of America, achieved the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, served on the National Security Council as a Ukraine expert. He's uh, was a listener to the so-called perfect call 
between Trump and Zelensky, who we've been talking about. He is the author of Here, Right Matters. Please welcome from his seat in the audience, American patriot, Alexander Vindman. So I guess we'll start serious. I was going to start with something not serious, but let's start. Where do you disagree with Gary, if at all? I think the likelihood of a nuclear war, I'll put your minds at ease, is not really significantly higher now than it was before this war started for NATO. The doctrine of a mutually assured destruction is ironclad. The Russians don't have a death wish, and they understand that the fundamental notion that a nuclear employment against NATO certainly results in, there's no limited type of tactical nuclear employment, it results in nuclear war. So I had the fortune of sitting across the, from the Russian uh, senior generals and having these conversations, and I think we all agreed that a nuclear war could never be won, this must never be fought. Last point I'll mention on this one is uh, Vladimir Putin has a uh, zest for life. He wants to live. <laughs> The fact that he sits a football field away from his closest advisors, <laughs> he doesn't want to get COVID. He does not want to get nuked. <laughs> That's profoundly important. I do have to say, though, uh, the risks getting increasingly higher as, the, as this war carries on. Because uh, as Gary could tell you, uh, Vladimir Putin likes to double down. He likes to press for vulnerabilities. He likes to explore weaknesses. So he wants to live, but also double down. He likes to win. So he's yeah, going so, to So probe. what is a guy, and any, 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 you know, this is what I'm confused about. What is a guy who likes to win and is used to winning do when he screws up massively and he's looking at an almost certain loss in some way? What, what does a guy like that do? Well, it's not a certain loss at this moment. Uh, he's taken some blows, uh, but he's... A, Wait, he's is, is, I'm sorry. Do you think that there's some possibility that he can still succeed in taking over all of Ukraine? His belief is that he might be able to. But do you think that's a possibility? No. So that not. means he's going to lose. Yes, but he doesn't realize that yet. And we are talking about a country that has a population of 140 million and vast depots of equipment that he could easily continue to push in there. And there is a scenario, it's unlikely that he's going to win, but there is a scenario in which he wins. I think it's actually this next phase of the war is, is somewhat challenging. It's going to be particularly challenging because you had this really poorly conceived initial battle plan with all the armies attacking simultaneously, no focus. Now he's going to focus in on a limited objective and he could potentially take places like Mariupol. He could secure the eastern portions of Ukraine. And guess what? In that kind of scenario, he doesn't stop. He's going to keep, keep pressing. Okay, so if that's true, if it, if it stops the bombing of innocent populations and shelters and, and places where children are, should Ukraine and or the West accede to a resolution in which Russia keeps some of those territories 
Ukraine agrees not to seek NATO membership, and everyone goes home and there's peace. That's not for us to decide. That's for the Ukrainian people to decide. But this is a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can speculate. I'm, I'm, but the point is that we forget yeah. uh, uh, the limits of right, U.S. So, so, power. So, right, so let me ask you a different question then. If that's your answer, what do you think the Ukrainian, answer, though, so. what do you think the Ukrainian people will, would say to something like that? Or Zelensky, would, he, would they say no? I think the Ukrainian people have shown an indomitable spirit. Yes. And they're not going to fight. They're not going to give up their sovereignty. They're not going to give up their freedom, which in a way, I could see this war even without the, the kinds of uh, uh, support that the West should be providing to win. I think the Ukrainians could still grind down the Russian military. It's still a country, the largest country in Europe, a population of 40 million, and it could destroy large swaths of the Russian army. But it's going and to be a, a huge, that's, there's a lot more resources, a lot more, uh, unfortunately, there are going to be a hell of a lot more casualties. And I think what could end up happening is a enormous human cost. We're just seeing the tip of the iceberg right now. It's going to be a lot more painful. Uh, cities are going to be wiped off the face of the map. Yeah. And that's actually a recipe for, for Western involvement. Whether we re recognize it or not, that's just an established template. We, we think that we could sit on the sidelines. We, we failed to do that in two world wars. Just took us a little while to realize it. We're on the cusp of another world war based on the fact that if you look at the map, the largest country in the world has attacked the largest country in Europe. Think about the scale of that. That's, that's quite a bit of territory on the, on the earth. Yeah. And it's already spilling over in economic spheres. It's already spilling over in terms of humanitarian cat, uh, catastrophes and instability. There's a good chance the longer this goes, and the more Putin probes uh, th that we do get sucked in, that spills over in a much, much more military manner. And that's when things get less predictable. Yeah, no, I think that's all true. So you're not on the NSC, you're not on the National Security Council anymore, so, and it's a podcast. So, so maybe you can speak more freely than you were able to. But I want to go back to this question that I was asking Gary. Should it be the declared policy and should it be in the rhetoric of the President of the United States, to whatever language you use, but effectively to say, we want regime change in Russia? Is that good or not? Yeah, and so my, my answer wasn't uh, kind of a, some sort of political kind of, uh, runaround. I, I just want to make sure it's clear that the U.S. is on the sidelines of this. We are not central to, the way, to, this, to this war unfolding right now. The, the kinds of support we're providing is not... It's not decisive. So we don't get to set the terms. We actually have done... So, but is your point then, it doesn't matter what the president says of the United States because it doesn't matter because we're on the sidelines? Or uh, in some way, it's counterproductive because he's the president of the United States? No, I think what, what we should understand is that this is ultimately going to get decided on the battlefields fields in Ukraine. They're the ones that are going to win or lose this war. They're right now likely to win it, although again, in great peril, we could probably alleviate some of that peril because it's not just a war between Ukraine and Russia, it's a war between democracy and dictatorship. It's really the, the, a major battle in the direction of the 21st century and the kind of world we want to live in. We haven't quite realized that we're starting to inch in that direction. That's what President's rhetoric represents. The president saying that this man cannot last because that's not the kind of century we want to live in. That's what that declaration was about. It was not a policy change. 
He was not saying that we're going to actively seek regime change. He's just saying that this man cannot survive in a 21st century in which we think we've moved past this kind of barbarism. And he's right, right. actually. But so if you were still at the NSC, would you have argued against all the staffers who wanted Biden to walk that back? Hell yeah, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, there was... I, I may have been on some news channel uh, well covered and saying that the, the people that walked that back shouldn't be in those positions. So who? Because they're not prepared to. Does that include? Prepared. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. I don't want to cause you to say a lot of. You're going to make some news here. Well, does that does that I ask Gary? Does that include Tony Blinken? Well, actually, I don't think um, Anthony Blinken's comments, uh, the Secretary of State's comments, were actually not the the issue. He clarified in the kind of help way that a diplomat should. That this isn't about regime change. Completely less, obtusely? Huh? Well, yeah, well, it's, it's yeah. diplomacy. You know. <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be impervious. But uh, I think that the fact is that uh, there were other people that were far, far less con constructive. These backgrounders that are saying, you know, this is not, this is unplanned or this is not representing a change in policy. The problem is right now, the president is ahead of the rest of the administration. The president has already kind of cho chosen a direction. And what needs to happen is you get, the, you get the process to fall in line. That's where, you know, uh, on the National Security Council, you convene these meetings and say, guess what, cabinet secretaries, this is the way we're moving. We're now supporting Ukraine. This is winnable. We're going we're gonna to win uh, this major battle for democracy. That's the part that's catching up right now. And I think we're moving in that direction. I, I get, I'm, although I'm not there, I'm still plugged in and I still have uh, the relevant conversations. And we're, you know, Gary, I could tell you that we're, we're starting to move in this direction too slow for a lot of our comfort, but we're starting to catch up. Can I, can I ask you Please. How long do you see this? It's a real question. How long do you see this playing out in this? That, I mean, is it an Afghanistan, Vietnam-like scenario where it can go on that long? I uh, loved you in Tropic Thunder, brother. Oh, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Cool. That, Thanks, that, man. Whoever choreographed uh, Tom Cruise's scene there, that was uh, the dance scene, that was yeah. fantastic. Thank you. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, so I think it does actually, it does, does has, have the very real potential to play out over the course of many months. Um, it's a war of attrition. It's, it's a war of attrition. Wait, I'm and, sorry, you think months, not years? I mean, that, that's hard to look, appear that deep. I mean, nobody considered uh, the U.S. getting involved in Vietnam in a years-long war, right? That unfolded because the, the Vietnamese resisted. Uh, I think it was none also of these jungles, don't forget. Yeah, jungle, Afghanistan jungle. mountains, Vietnam jungles. This and, Ukraine and is, is Ukraine, Ukraine urban geography, topography is very different. Well, Ukraine has got the urban jungle, and that's why they're having such a hard time yeah, they, they, they penetrating through the city. Yes. They are. But rubble is a, a very good def, uh, def, uh, place to defend from. So... I think those the destroying the cities is frankly in a lot of ways on the battlefield is makes their lives harder. Um, but the bottom line is it's likely to play out in at least months, potentially years. Although again, the, the, there is no way that the, the West could sit out on the sidelines. And I think uh, we should remember that there are other world powers that are watching this right now. It, uh, China doesn't want to be on the losing side. They don't want to step in when they were told that this is only going to be a, a you know, two-day war, easy peasy, no cost. That's not b borne out in fact. But if Russia starts achieving some success, President Xi is going to return to his comfort zone. He's going to want to support 
President Putin, and then that becomes a massive proxy war, and that's how this gets dragged out into a much, much longer period of time. The, the geometry for protracted war changes, and it's likely to result in spillover. It's likely to result in the kinds of decisions that we thought were impossible early. Like right now, we're, we're providing weapons that we didn't think we were going to. The Central Bank of Russia has been sanctioned. Nobody, nobody, that was not even on the table when, when this war started. Hmm. Uh, everything, uh, the, the things that we thought were impossible are now the easy decisions. It's only going to get harder from here on out. We need to think about risk, not just right now, and how risky it is to, to arm the Ukrainians with the weapons they, they need to establish their own no-fly zone. We need to recognize that we may very well have to do that ourselves at some point. When the human toll beca becomes too high or a nuclear power plant gets struck and it starts to spill over into Europe, those are the types of things that we're going to be in a position to make decisions about. So we should probably make some pretty risk-informed decisions now and recognize that you know, arming Ukraine with the big 29s or arming Ukraine with the weapons that they need does not precipitate uh, a third world war. The Russians don't want that. They've done everything to avoid that. I mean, part of the reason that they're there is that they, they kind of got a green light that NATO wasn't going to be on the ground. It made it kind of easy. If there's a, a risk of a, uh, of a confrontation with NATO, they're going to they're gonna do everything they can to avoid that. They're already bogged down uh, in this very, very difficult war in Ukraine. So does it not help when Biden says it's World War III if there's a no-fly zone? That, that is uh, sometimes, um, sometimes there, you shouldn't say that the, those parts out loud. Um, <laughs> but but we, we can. Yeah, we can. Yeah, okay. As I keep saying, it's a podcast. I think, yes. I think the, the, point is, podcast. the point is that, you know, frankly, I'll tell you from my perspective, we only have one viable party right now. We have only a Democratic Party. The Republican Party has been captured by Trump. So I find it difficult to criticize President Biden because I know that he has a, a we have a midterm election and a 2024 election. That's just the way I think. But uh, how, this could be much this could be a much more acute geopolitical disaster and our soldiers could be at war. And I, I will offer the kinds of constructive criticism that I need to to nudge the administration in the right direction. That's all our responsibilities to call it the way we see it, uh, to be frank. And uh, if we have some some something substantive to offer, we have to do that. I want to ask you, I tried add a little bit of optimism, so I don't think we're talking about years, because if sanctions stay, I don't think Russian economy yeah. will, will survive until the end of this year. So is the, it's, but again, the sanctions must stay. If, if they use sanctions to, to strangle, you know, as, as I said, yeah. To throw it back to the Stone Age, yeah. technology, finance, e e economy, but did, trade. But do you think everyone will stay strong on that on the West? Uh, there are there are loop, there are still loopholes. There's still loopholes, and it's it's, it's it, it, by the way it's even they Victoria still have Newell, oil and gas contracts with with yeah. sufficient countries that they're making money. But look, yeah, yeah, exactly. Every every day, every day we give Putin extra, you know, fifty to one million to one billion dollars. So by buying Russian oil and gas, that's how he's, he he supports. So we should stop that. Yes, that's, that's why I say there's, there's room. There's room for it. Also, Victoria Newland recently said that, oh, if, if war continue, would continue, so we had more sanctions to add. It means that there's plenty. It's, it's still not, it, many American companies are still, not many, but still quite a few still there. So there's a room. If the sanctions are com complete, 
So I would give maximum six months for Russian economy to, 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 to run. The, and also Putin, Putin will probably run out of money. I mean, he, had, he needs war chests to pay for his police. Yeah. Army, of course, with police, propaganda. And you know, it's, uh, the moment he runs out of funds, nobody's going to, to work for him. I have two last things to ask to the lieutenant colonel, and then we can all go. One is... Uh, please call me Alex. <laughs> so you were pushed out of your job. And one of the reasons that people stood up for you twice is because of your courage and your patriotism. You were pushed out for various reasons. You have sued a number of people in the Trump orbit for retaliation against you and what you allege to be intimidation of you as a witness. A how's podcast. the lawsuit going? It's a going? podcast. You could say intimidation. You know? yeah. how's, how's, how's that going? Um, it's, it's going slow. I think we're still waiting for the response from the defendants. I mean, the, the bottom line for this is uh, I'm looking to start to pin back the activities of uh, loyal henchmen that think they could act with impunity. So... <laughs> Donald, Donald Trump is um, inept, and it, it's because he had some henchmen that were slightly more competent that were able to kind of affect some of his policies. And slightly more. Slightly more. Yeah. Yeah, slightly more. So I, I think the, the point is that, uh, again, while the president might have presidential immunity and there's a high, high threshold for action against him, uh, the henchmen don't. And the henchmen, if they have to bear a cost, will then recognize that they probably should avoid doing their evil deeds because, again, impunity is this issue that we have to deal with in international relations and, and domestic politics. We, we can't have uh, a, a, an official serving government attacked for doing uh, his or her, her duty and uh, that people get, just get away with that. Yeah. So that's what this is about. So the last thing I want to ask you about, going back to a theme of the show, Ben and I had a conversation about you, and it was... Um, you had a homework assignment. You were going to watch the last episode of the last season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I don't know if you got a chance to, to do that. You don't have to say. And we've been in a conversation, and the conversation sort of generally over the evening and in my life has been, can you only be serious? Can you only be funny? Can you only do serious things? Can you be part of things that are silly? I like to think you can do both. I hope this evening has showed you can do both. You're a serious person who is never introduced without calling you a patriot. People stand up for you, and you went on a show with Larry David, <laughs> which I thought was excellent. I have two final questions. One, why did you do that? <laughs> which I endorse. And two, did anybody tell you that was not a good idea? And if so, are you still friends with them? <laughs> well, uh, I tend to be the funniest member of my family. I'm, I'm pretty funny. Uh, people don't see that on TV. So initially, actually, I, I didn't want to is do Rachel it. Is Rachel here? Because we can she ask is. her. My, 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 She's uh, pretty funny. Her Twitter, feed, her Twitter feed is pretty funny. Yeah. She's, she's but, tough. But, I, I wouldn't cross her. But go on. Um, so uh, Rachel was one of the reasons I, I did the show. I initially said no. Larry then, you know, convinced me to come on a Zoom call with him, kind of did this whole, you know, shtick 
It was kind of funny. I wasn't, I mean, I was on the fence, but uh, Rachel has a brother out in LA and he had a new baby that we hadn't met. So we're like, oh, we could, we could see my new niece. This is, this is a twofer. And then my book was coming out and, you know, my publisher was like, oh, we could make this about your book. You know, that's what your, 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 your promotional stuff. So uh, it's really, that was what drew me in. And that's how show business works. That's how show business works. <laughs> It was, it was actually lots of fun. It was a yeah. good time. I'm glad I did it. You were great. Did it, but I nailed part, that character. Did you, did you lose any friends over it? Uh, no. No. Definitely okay, not. Good. So it's been a... It's been a let, me, let me end. Um, on, on two notes, and then you can all go get drinks. Note one is, you know, it is such a privilege in all seriousness, to be able to do a thing like this. And for me to be up on a stage with these folks who said yes. Um, and then, and then, and then, then I, could, I can convene these brilliant people to talk about you know, life and art and war and patriotism and that Hundreds of people come and pay money to listen to this. It's just, it's really something that you all care about this so much. And, and you've been with Stay Tuned for a number of years, a thing that I did, started as a lark with my brother. So I'm just very, really moved and touched that you're here and that we can be here in person. That's point one. Point two it's something we've been talking about all evening. Um, you know, these are, these are hard and heavy times, and, I, and I've been thinking about how we cope with it. It's been one of the questions that Ben and I have been talking about and, and others, and I sometimes see people, maybe this is the reason I care about it, is I sometimes see people get scolded for making a joke or taking something lightly because things are so terrible, and they are terrible. But my view is you got to take a break from that from time to time, because you know, even as we worry and fret and grieve, laughter is really important. And a couple of weeks ago I tweeted, you are allowed to laugh even in times of tragedy, war, and disease. I'm not sure otherwise how you keep your sanity. That's one of the reasons I wanted Ben to be here, because he's helped me keep my sanity for years. Um, more important people have made the point better and these are a couple of examples. Abraham Lincoln assembled his cabinet on September 22nd, 1862, just five days after the bloody Battle of Antietam. And when he was there, he unveiled the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. Now think how heavy that moment must have been. Nonetheless, Lincoln decided to read his cabinet a funny story. It was called A High-Handed Outrage in Utica by the popular comedian, I'm sure you've heard of him, <laughs> Artemis Ward. When he was done reading the story, Lincoln said, gentlemen, why don't you laugh? With the fearful strain that is on me night and day, if I did not laugh, I should die. And as we discussed today as well, laughter has great power. And this is from Mark Twain. It's from an unfinished novel called The Mysterious Stranger. And in that novel, a Satanesque celestial visitor tells three boys 
from the 1700s in Germany, what he believes is literally the only strength of the human race. And he says, for your race, meaning the human race, in its poverty, has unquestionably only one really effective weapon, laughter, power, money, persuasion, supplication, persecution. These can lift at a colossal humbug, push it a little, weaken it a little, century by century, but only laughter can blow it to rags and atoms at a blast. Against the assault of laughter, nothing can stand. Amen. Thank you for coming out for this. I love you. Have a great night. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks so much to my guests, Ben Stiller, Gary Kasparov, and Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.